Thanks everyone. If we could sit down and start the session, we're already running five minutes late. Thank you. We have two TED style talks this afternoon. Um, the first by Jason Cooper Williams and Michael Pradell, both from Gen V. Um, their presentation is Crash Bam Boom. Who remembers a rock set song from the early 90s? <laughs> One hand. Um, PHR Disability Income group business at risk. And following that, we have Paul Willem Janssen von Rensburg, how machine learning is the death of the conventional actuary. So if you, like me, are the conventional actuary, pay attention. Thank you. I'm going to hand over to Jason. Am I on? Thanks. All right, welcome. We have two quite different sessions here today. We were just arguing over who you're all yet to see. I suppose you'll never know. but. Uh, yeah, um, I'll take it through, slow through my presentations. I'll, I'll do a bit of uh, contextualizing some of the stuff because I do realize we have quite a mixed crowd in here. All right, so we are here today to just give you a bit of a status update on the disability income market in the country and provide hopefully some of our insights into it. Why are we doing this? Uh, well, for those of you in the industry, you'll know that there's been a, a significant and steady decline in experience in this industry over the last two to three years. I've had a few group colleagues chat to me throughout the day saying, why do I want to relive the horror show here? You know, um, they're already dreaming of a day when this won't be a regular agenda item on, on, on board meetings. So we do dream of that day one day again. Um, they said the clicker would work. I'm pushing this green button. That's not my slide. <laughs> Are you working on the problem? Thumbs up. No, no. There we go. All right. Start again. All right. So as I said, there's been significant decline in experience over the last two years. Uh, and this is a good summary slide of where we are. So what we have done is we've just pulled some SENS announcements over the last six to 12 months, you might recognize one of these as, as your company. Um, but as you can see, it's an expensive problem to ignore or not to fix. Um, and hopefully this, through this presentation, we can provide a bit of insight into the how, why, and what in terms of how this occurred and how we to get out of it or to move forward. Uh, to provide a bit of context for those that are not very familiar with the product, yeah, I mean, the terminology, we call it PHR, Disability Income, Income Protection. If I use those words interchangeably, it is all the same thing. But it is a very important benefit in this industry. Um, to the industry it's important, the, the, the annual premium income is massive, the group market is big, established, it's been running for decades, which means when things do go a bit south, there's the possibility or the potential to lose a lot of money uh, and, and expensive mistakes have been made. It is a very uh, important policy to, or important product to policyholders. Um, at Genry, we believe this is one of the most important risk products. So often the first asset you ever get hold of and the first time you should be looking for insurance is your future income stream. So your first job, that future income stream, is your most important asset and you should be insuring that. Um, so we also found that this insurance is bought at a much younger age than traditional life insurance, critical illnesses and the other suites of risk products. So for that reason we believe it fulfills a very real uh, and active and almost social need in the industry. I've mentioned group and individual a bit separately. There's a, an established group market, as I've said. Um, but the individual retail market has also seen significant growth in the last decade. So a lot of entrepreneurs, 
uh, people that run small and medium businesses, uh, business owners, they also take out this kind of cover in a personal capacity to protect that asset. It's a very complex product, which has led to some of the problems we've seen, or at least the delay in fixing this, 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 uh, this problem. It's complex by definition, so it's a product that doesn't need a, a death certificate as a life policy does, or a cancer diagnosis as a severe illness does. It requires someone to decide, I'm not able to work anymore, so I'm too ill to work. Quite often that is quite subjective. Um, if you ask the policyholder, a medical professional, or the insurer whether this person can work or not, you're probably going to get three different opinions. So it's, it's quite subjective and difficult to manage. There's claim choice in the product, which makes a, adds an, an, an interesting dynamic. So as I said, a policyholder is choosing when to claim, uh, and that choice would actually look different amongst different people. So people in very similar circumstances, similar jobs, one might choose I am too ill to work and another not. So it depends very much on uh, individual personality type aspects. And also the same person might choose to claim in different environments. So Mike will talk a little bit about, about the economy, but when your job is at risk, you're probably more likely to claim for the same condition than you know, if the future was bright and good bonuses were being paid out. So those, uh, those subjective elements do come into it. It's a product with a lot of moving parts. The product by itself has waiting periods, termination, retirement ages, escalations and all sorts, so lots of bits and pieces you can fit together. But when things go pear-shaped, also it's very difficult to pinpoint what has gone wrong. So unlike a, a regular death or critical illness product where it's just an incidence rate, yeah, you might be get, getting the, the, the right amount of claims as expected, but suddenly your termination rates have adjusted. And the termination rate is the, the rate at which people are going back to work. So often when your, your profitability does start to suffer, you, it's not obvious where to look. Are you getting more claims? Are less people going back to work? And if less people are going back to work, is it earlier on in the durations? Or you know, is everyone who's claimed for five years now suddenly not going back to work? Is it at the later durations? Um, and once you've made it through that minefield, is it for the product of the three-month waiting period or the six-month waiting period? And once you've worked through that minefield, you can get into your regular rating factors. Is it the males, the females, the young, the old? So a lot of moving parts in this product. Um, it's also subject to external shocks, um, and I think that's what has happened. So we've had a bit of a perfect storm of events over the last three years, which has led to this. Um, so as, as risk actuaries, we're used to working with what we call biometric risks. So that's how long you're going to live and what's your propensity for illness um, and disease. Um, but as you've seen, regulatory changes, economic changes, unemployment rates, all those sorts of ex external shocks, and we'll go into that in a bit of detail, do, do, do impact the experience on this product. Bit of context around the environment. Uh, yes, where do we find ourselves and how did we get to this position of, of recording uh, almost record losses? Well, in 2015, there were the tax changes, and what that meant for this product was that the benefit was now not taxed in the hands of the policyholder. So you get paid your money as a salary and it's taxed, suddenly you're getting the same benefit and it was not, not taxed. So suddenly everyone's replacement ratio just shifted up, and the replacement ratio is the ratio of your benefit to your salary. And when that happens, you tend to get more claimants. So if the insurer is willing to pay you more to be disabled, you're going to be more disabled, and you're also going to stay disabled longer. That's how it, how it tends to work. Um, political and economic uh, instability, you, most of you live in this country, you'll be aware of this. Um, but also in times of economic downturn, we tend to see more claimants. So also every, every actuary, good actuarial student here will have read this in the, the F202 notes. There is this, this link between the economy and, 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 these, um, and these benefits. So I think it's a lot of it is related to retrenchments and unemployment, which is my next point. 
Um, companies have been known to use the disability income benefit on their schemes to sort of fund the first tranche or two in retrenchment exercises when, when they happen. So when you're retrenching people, you know, you can get rid of the, the dead and the dying and the sick and the disabled first, and the disability income benefit is a cheaper and easier option for the companies used. So for those of you who rate a lot of group quotes out there, you'll also see this schemes where the membership is decreasing, you tend to see worse disability experience. During all of this, there's con been continued pressure on the product, unfortunately. It's also in the group space, very competitive um, pressure on rates and on sort of the hurdles to claim, should I say. So those would be the risk management tools that we hold on to, so free cover limits, terms and conditions. Um, so in this relentless environment, that has persisted and has actually got a little bit worse. So while the, the debate opened around what should be a, 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 a decent replacement ratio, intermediaries suddenly thought, well, why don't we put bonuses in here as well? And we started having that debate. So negotiating at a very different level from when we were. So we were at a space where we were paying maybe 75% of salary, had a bunch of uh, things happen which caused a bit of a crisis, and suddenly we're debating whether we should include bonuses in this benefit and not. And yeah. I mean, I might be tempted to claim if you paid me a bonus to stay at home as well, so it becomes a very different, a very different problem. Those of us who work in you know, international companies also be cognizant of the recent Australian experience. So they had some of these issues above, but a, a few unique ones. But what happened in their market is that insurers and reinsurers just exited totally. So that is a point and a, that we do not want to reach, um, obviously, in this country. So what has this meant for the emerging experience in the market? Thank you, Jason. Enjoy your chair. <laughs> Quite comfortable. Welcome. I'm glad to see a lot of senior sort of um, people in the in the group space. Um, so over the next few slides, I'll share with you sort of high-level um, summaries of of some of the analyses that we've done over the past few years. Um, first off, I mean, as most of you would know, the cost of a, of a PHI or IP benefit is firstly driven by sort of how often do you claim or your incidence rate. And on the other hand, um, how long do you claim for your termination rate, or when do you go back, home, um, back to work, or die, for that matter? <laughs> um, so then firstly, in, in 2014, we completed an industry-wide termination rate survey, looking at 16,000 terminations um, from eight different insurers, specifically in the group market. We looked at a comprehensive set of factors, um, one of those factors being the sort of calendar effect um, on terminations. So what you look at here is, is termination rates by um, a calendar year band and duration since claim inception. And as expected, um, termination rates decreasing, de decreasing with, with duration since claim. So looking at 2004 to 2007, um, you can see that across the board, termination rates increased, um, which is a good thing. And then again, 2008 to 2010, increasing even further, um, so leading to profits in the, in the industry, um, everyone being really happy. Um, some of you might say, Michael, you're being really stupid. Um, I mean, it's just a mix um, changing. Um, we've done a multi multivariate analysis as well, um, and we saw the same sort of results from that analysis. Um, just showing the sort of effects or the, the industry-wide termination rate shape um, across the 16,000 terminations. Um, just by a show of hands, who do you think the termination rates went up after 2010? And so up after 2010? Or increasing termination rates? Down? <laughs> well done. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so what we did is, I mean, the termination analysis was completed, so we looked at sort of 240 quotes that we've done. 
And we saw that um, termination rates actually went down. So actually went down to levels we last saw in sort of 2000 to 2003, um, which is quite severe and which is, um, I mean, in part leading to the losses that we've seen in the market. Then turning our attention to the incidence rate side, um, we looked at the same 240 quotes, so calculated exposure, looked at the claims to get a crude um, feel for, for incidence, and we looked at it by industry. Um, so starting off with the heavy industries, um, you can see that it's quite stable experience. So this is your manual occupations, your, your blue-collar label workers. Um, stable experience 2000-2014 with this uptick in 15 and 16. So exactly as that sort of tax change happened as well. Looking at the, at the medium in industries, you can see um, experience quite volatile over the period. Um, but this is where we had the least amount of exposure, so this is something we would expect. And then looking at the, the culprits being us, um, the white label um, workers, um, all those, those sort of back aches and the, and, and the side claims happening, um, a severe worsening in experience. So experience going from sort of um, a 50% increase in, in actual experience. Um, and then looking at the industry as a whole, quite stable experience on the incident side um, with an uptick in sort of 14, 15, and 16. Um, so just keep this shape at the back of your, of your mind as well as we move on to the, the following slides. So in 2010, we completed a paper on the link between the economy and um, incidents experience. Uh, in, this, in this analysis, we looked at quarterly incidents um, statistics along with quarterly economic factors, unemployment, consumer confidence, business confidence, and GDP growth. And we sort of were able to predict fairly accurately the movement in the next quarter's incidence rates but just looking at consumer confidence, business confidence, uh, and unemployment figures without looking at any other factors. So no genders, nothing else being allowed for. This is the model we used. So you can see there's a, there's a, a lagging factor or quarterly lagging, lagging factor involved. So it's this consumer um, confidence index, business confidence index, along with unemployment figures, and then also the, the existing incidence rate. So you see in blue the, the observed sort of incidence rate we saw over that period, along with the modeled um, the model output. Why is this important? So graphing, graphing our sort of the business confidence index in green, um, consumer confidence in, in purple, and our modeled sort of uh, um, incidence rate in, in black, um, you can see that we predicted sort of stable incidence 2010 to 14, and then again with this uptick in 15 and 16, um, which is then similar to the incidence rates we saw earlier on in 15 and 16. So you can see at the same time we had tax and the, 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 sort of the, the change in business confidence and con cons consumer confidence index. So you can see that experience is definitely worsening. Um, it's really quite concerning. Um, we know the industry um, responded. So, I mean, initially everyone probably knew that we're going to see worse experience emerging with their tax changes. Um, a lot of companies decided we're going to follow sort of a wait and see approach. I think it didn't work out for them that well. And then sort of from there, when the sort of experience didn't actually emerge, they were always playing catch-up um, with the rest of the market um, uh, on those changes. So this is probably a priority for most of the boards in their companies um, to sort out this disability income experience issue. We're seeing a lot of changes sort of on the, on the claim side, so a lot of claims teams being sort of more claims assessors being hired, um, fixing claims practices strengthening reserving bases, so the industry is responding. Um, those of you in the industry would know that there's, there's a bit more margin on the PHI side at the moment, so we, we've got more room to move prices up to sustainable levels, which is a good thing. 
And this is quite an important time for the industry to stick together. So all of us, it's, it's our problem. We need to sort it out. Um, we need to make sure we've got the risk management practices in place, free cover limits being appropriate, uh, making sure we don't um, incentivize members to not go to work, as Jason, Jason mentioned um, earlier on. Then we need to make sure that we understand the drivers and, and price accordingly. So one thing that the group industry has been really poor at is getting data and analyzing that data. And that's something that we definitely need to work on going forward. So the big question remaining is, is this experience going to get worse? And is this the only thing that we should worry about? All right. <clears throat> so are we at a new normal, or is there another shock coming? I, I definitely think we are at a new structural level in terms of the experience rates, incidents, and termination rates that Mike showed us are in terms of where the pricing has ended up. And I don't think we're going to see that reverse unless there is a, a, you know, a, a, a significant change in our, in our economic fortunes. So I do think we're sitting there. Um, is there another shock coming? I think that is the, you know, the holy grail, the question maybe we're all asking, what is the next big thing that could move the experience? But I think what is maybe more important is, or in the, 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 the very definite near future, is are things going to get worse before they get better? You know, so now we feel like we're economists trying to predict where retrenchments and unemployments and all that risk is going to come from. Um, but I think you know, working out where the experience is going to go over the next two to th or one, two, three years is probably more important than trying to anticipate that next, that next big shock. Um, I think the developing a capability um, to deal with and an agility to deal with shocks straight after they happen is probably a bigger lesson that we've learned through this experience. So I think when the tax change ha happened and through seeing the economy slide, everyone was predicting this experience was going to suddenly move, um, but not many people did anything about it. And then when it happened, as Mike said, a lot of people were playing, not necessarily catch up with other people in the market, but catch up just to where the experience was going. So we find in the group market, people are quite quick, or in intermediaries are quite quick in forcing insurers to follow the experience down, but when it goes up, you do a wait-and-see approach for a year or two, and then you, you never catch it. So if the experience goes up five, you'll put it up five in a year or two's time, and you just know we'll, we'll never get there. But to change tack a bit and do something a little bit more fun and interesting, we thought we'd look at, well, what do we think is maybe the next thing to, to hit this, this wonderful product of ours? Uh, and with a product where you pay out on occupation, so you can't do your occupation or job anymore, and then when you see the concept of jobs and occupations starting to change, you need to sit up and take notice. So who was in Peter Temple's presentation earlier? All right. So you know what a slasher and a gigger is. Any slashers or giggers here? None. Does anyone here know what a slasher or a gigger is? Not really. All right. All right. A slasher is someone with a, I'm an accountant slash events organizer. I'm an actuary slash part-time brewer. That's the truth, actually. I'm a, um, <laughs> so you get that bit. And a gigger are the guys that work in what we call now the on-demand economy. So I have a range of skills. Um, I'm going to work, I'm not going to work for anyone. I'm going to work for a bunch of people doing what I like. So I'm going to do a bit of web designing, graphic designing. I'll also do a bit of delivery when I can. And yeah, I'll also do some events organizing on the side. And this has all evolved through part of this uh, sharing economy. What is interesting about a lot of this is it's across the board. So we often look at these things and we think millennials, um, but that's definitely not, not the case. So I've done a lot of work in the UK and the US on this, and I, know, I think Old Mutual ran a survey in July this year on this impact in South Africa. But um, taking on a second career in South Africa often could be because you need to supplement your primary income. That's a very valid uh, reason. But also a lot of people are now 
you know, going on to second and third careers, um, and in the, the interim they might be juggling two at the same time. That's definitely part of this concept of slashes that we're seeing. Um, and Gigas, I think, maybe probably is towards the younger end, so as people get out of school, university, trying to find out uh, where they belong. And a lot of these platforms opening up on-demand work, we're seeing that, that gig trend take off. So what does this look like for the insurance companies? It's something that our claims team actually picked up first. They suddenly were starting to remark that claims in the space are becoming a lot more complex to deal with, and it wasn't necessarily that it's a very complicated psychological disorder we're looking at or a very strange accident that might only impact part of a person's job. It was just that a person's coming in and they can't do this job, but it isn't the job we thought they were doing, and they actually are doing another job, so that throws a bit of a spanner in the works. And often when you assess these disability income claims, what you're doing is you're looking at their loss of earnings. So often someone will lose all their earnings, but they might also just be what we'd call half disabled. So they've lost the ability to do half their job or, or earn half their income. But suddenly they have four income streams and it's quite variable. So how do you measure that now? So that's now further spanner in the works. So it's not looking quite complicated. So what happens when the over-educated, underskilled knowledge worker enters the sharing economy? They're getting their career on the go. Well, they might give you a lift to the airport or deliver lunch. And um, this is not science fiction. In Cape Town, I've taken an Uber to the airport driven by a very young and enterprising actuarial student. So this is not, this is not something way out there. If they decide they want to buy one of these policies, they might get underwritten or priced as a legal or a financial professional. And then injured being an Uber driver, part-time microbrewer or weekend diving instructor. So as you can see, it starts getting a, a, a bit complex. Uh, it's a problem we need to deal with, um, but it's also been raised to quite high levels in the UK. So if you're interested in this, the Taylor Review, I think, is something that's quite interesting to read. So these people are also not fitting into any traditional boundaries in the UK in terms of their labour reg regulation and social security. So how do these people, they don't fit in into any traditional categories. They're trying to incorporate them into the regulations. So again, an example of regulations trying to work around uh, these evolving themes. Right, so where to from here? Um, yeah, I think we stressed enough the importance that we place on this product. Uh, we don't want to get to a situation in Australia where it, it blows up and suddenly the capacity dries up in the market and supplies uh, dries up. I think we need to keep it or treat this product with the respect it deserves and price it and manage it in a, in a sustainable way. I think, as Mike said, we're talking about data and analytics. We'd like to get to a place where we do more real-time analysis and so making that actuarial control cycle real-time, maybe having some red flag systems where we can pick up earlier and quicker when things start moving. So, you know, if our experience has deteriorated two quarters in a row, that triggers something. So I think a lesson learned uh, through this exercise was that I think we were far too slow to, to take meaningful action in correcting this, which then leads to uh, a poorer mitigation of the effects of it. So we're quite slow in managing to correct the profitability. I think as actuaries we need to understand the trends better. So we've, we're quite well trained and versed in the biometric but you know, economic, regulatory, political, other. Um, I think for the last decade, we've kind of managed and looked after this product the same way every year. And I think also what we realized here is you need to change that depending on the environment you're in. So is the economy growing? Is it going down? Are we in a, uh, uh, is the political situation this or that? Are we going through a lot of regulatory changes? So the tax change triggered a, 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 a response in the experience that we probably, we probably weren't anticipating the tax change. Um, but also, could there be changes in the Labour Regulation Act in the future that impact us? So I think we're a lot more aware of watching out for regulatory impacts on the experience here. Yeah. And watch the emerging job space. 
So I think we have a good product. I think it's quite a narrow product. I think um, this product in the future has to meet very different needs. So I might be a nine to five, five day a week actuary for life. And on this side, you're gonna have someone that's gonna be juggling lots of careers and no less than five at a time. And how does a single product cater for both of these needs? It probably doesn't, but as actuaries in the product space, we need to decide how to, to meet these two needs. And as, uh, as Peter's presentation said, the job that these people need to get done, how do we focus on, on solving that? And that's it for us. We are gonna do questions at the end of the session. Hello, everyone. Hello. Can you hear me? Yes. Hi. I'm Pierre. Um, I ask that you please refrain from throwing vegetables and tomatoes till after the presentation. Um, I'm here today to spread the gospel of machine learning. Now, to do that, let's start with a story. The year is 2034. Artificial intelligence is running rampant, not in the sense of Judgment Day and Terminator, more in the sense that it has embedded itself into every aspect of our life. Um, yeah. Imagine waking up in the morning, every morning, feeling refreshed because your alarm clock was monitoring your sleep patterns and making sure it wakes you up at the, up at the optimal time. Imagine on top of that that you walk into the kitchen and there's a smoothie catered to your current state of health, ensuring that you get all of the necessary vitamins and minerals that you need. Then, after you've prepared, you walk outside and there's a self-driving car waiting to drive you to work, or at least those of you that haven't lost their job to artificial intelligence yet. <laughs> now, I say this in jest because I'm not here to be a doomsayer. I will be trying to present facts, and although I will sometimes be referring to some statistics as well. So, most of you are wondering what is that I've, what, what I've, that I mentioned now has to do with machine learning and why should you care? Some of you are just wondering, well, he doesn't look that tall on stage. <clears throat> to begin with that, let's, let's get on to what is machine learning and what is machine learning not. Machine learning is not magic, although from a regulatory point of view, uh, a black box implemented, implemented neural net might as well be black magic. It's not the answer to life, the universe, and everything. We all know that's 42. Machine learning is a subfield of computer science and statistics that concerns itself with the study and implementation of algorithms that learn and predict from data. It is also a key tool of a data scientist. Now, you might have noticed that I put data science in quotes there. That is because there is currently a lot of hype around this profession. Now, yes, we are at the peak of inflated expectations, and yes, we are about to head into the trial of disillusionment, but once all is said and done, landscapes will have shifted. Landscapes in well, landscapes will have shifted, and that will have consequences. Consequences in the form of first and second order consequences. Now, we being people of science, let's start with the second one first. 
you, some of you that don't get this, the reference, uh, it's a port from 1992 video game Zero Wing. Um, I might be from Bloemfontein, but my English are gooder than this. <laughs> Recently, there was a study done by Dr. Jean um, that has to do with the lack of independence from teenagers. Now, I said I wasn't going to be a doomsayer. She referred to the destruction of a generation. Her words, not mine. This is all thanks to a little device that fits into the palm of your hand. Now, cell phones are sort of the peak of machine learning implementations in production. For those of you that don't realize, all of your social media and everything, the news feed, all of those, they're built on machine learning algorithms. Now, her study revealed that because of social media and teenagers' dependence on social media, they no longer wanted to leave the house. They no longer wanted to get their driver's license. They saw it as a task that has to be forced upon them by their parents. Now, this lack of new drivers coming in also leads to a lack of new policyholders coming into the industry, coming into the, into the market. This, combined with my previous example of self-driving cars, leads to, and I said I wasn't going to be a doomsayer, perhaps the collapse of personal vehicle insurance. A self-driving car will shift the burden of responsibility from the driver of the car to the builder of the car. Another study was mentioned earlier by Dimitri in one of his earlier presentations. The study by Danforth and Rees that, that studied the... Sorry, ladies and gentlemen. The Danforth and Rees study that looked at depression by depression, classifying depression based on Instagram photos. These Instagram photos were run through a machine learning algorithm and they could classify depression with an accuracy of 70%. This is a lot higher than your average GP's diagnosis of depression, which only stands at 42%. Now, you also get a device called Sensi that fits into the palm of your hand like the clicker. This device listens to your heartbeat and can detect heart murmurs with an accuracy of 97%. That is more accurate than the best cardiologists out there. You combine these two things again and you sit with a remote diagnostic tool that fits into the palm of your hand. This might not cause a total collapse of the medical scheme industry, but it will certainly shift the landscape, as I mentioned earlier. Now, those are second-order consequences. They deal with the general population and the products available to them. The first-order consequences will have to do with how actuaries do their job, how they go about every day, how they do their modeling and their value to business. This leads me to one of my favorite examples um, that comes from the Kaggle platform. Those of you not familiar with Kaggle, it's a machine learning platform, online machine learning platform that, where they host competitions. And it gives you, uh, you submit your machine learning model based on a certain problem that they've presented for a certain competition. It gives you a Kaggle score and you get an accuracy from your training data. Now, this specific individual entered the introductory Titanic competition where you try and predict the survival rates of Titanic um, people on the Titanic. And he, after 38 iterations of logistic regression models, tweaking the data, some feature engineering, he came up with a Kaggle score of 
and the accuracy on his training data of 0.8361. With his first implementation of a random forest, he managed to move up that score, Kakel score from 0.794 to 0.799, and he had accuracy of 0.9. Now, yes, some of you might say the model obviously doesn't generalize very well, seeing as there's such a big difference between the training data and the actual out-of-time sample, but take into account that very little feature engineering was done, and there was no tweaking done on the random forest. This was an out-of-the-box implementation. For my next example, this is a bit more specific. Thank you to StatCore Consulting UK for providing me with this, this example. Their business is implementing machine learning algorithms to improve pricing for insurers. They've implemented a lot of these machine or algorithmic pricing models for actual insurers in the UK. For this specific one, they used penalized regression, and they kept the model fairly simple with six rating factors, and they managed to achieve a loss ratio improvement of 0.4%. That's not a lot, but it was proven to be a significant increase for the, for the two different models. There was also a 10% improvement in average premiums and strong levels, levels of contribution, which is what they wanted at the end of the day. You want to better price your higher risks and, well, lower price your higher risks and higher price your higher risks. Now, I also mentioned earlier that I will be sticking with facts and only throwing around statistics every now and again, so this is a book. <laughs> For my next example, I want to thank you, Dr. Paul, all the way from Down Under for providing this content. He fitted three models on a US autobook, on a US autobook. it consists of 38,000 claims data. The data consists of 38,000 claims. They, um, they kept the model simple with certain variables on both, and for the neural net, they implemented a gamma backpropagation algorithm, and for the generalized linear models, they had a log link and a gamma. Now, they used the gamma deviance to, to measure the, the effectiveness of both of these models. And as you can see, the deviance improvement from the null to the neural network and the null model to the GLM was 9.69 and 11.33, respectively, on the training data, and 9.47 on the validation data, and 11.24 for the neural network on the validation data. Obviously, this shows a pretty good improvement for the neural net, and the actual underlying the actual data, for the actual data, we can see that the neural network that's on the green one, on the left, on the right for you guys, it also fitted the distribution a lot better as for severity data, the gamma is the accepted distribution to use, whereas the GLM had a bit of a trouble keeping to the distribution. Now, a lot has been done recently to improve the education for actuaries, implementing new, um, new trends, but the insurance industry has always been slow to adapt. By inference, also the actuarial profession as a whole. Now, as I said, a lot has been done, but I feel not enough is being done. The banking industry is a good example. It was ripe for infiltration, especially for actuaries with their unique understanding of risk and their appetite for being risk averse. 
but because of their slowness to adapt, machine learning specialists moved in and they disrupted the industry for them. There's no better example than at Capitec Bank, as it's the credit as the best bank in the world, according to Lafferty in its second annual quality rankings. I might be a bit biased, but we have an unbiased source here. Not a single actuary is employed in an actuarial role. We only have machine learning specialists and data scientists and statistical consultants. Now, you might be saying, that's not that, we're doing okay. But I would like to paraphrase one of the greats. Come with me if you want to stay relevant. And let's start implementing the machine learning journey now before it's too late. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much to, to Jason and Michael and Paul for two very different yet equally fascinating <laughs> presentations. I must admit I wasn't ready for the Gemsbok. <laughs> um, we'll take questions from the audience for either of the presenters. We do have a roving mic, just pop your hand up if you have a question. There we are, at the back. And we'll come to um, just a question for Jason. Uh, you mentioned the Australian experience where the PHI product has become dysfunctional, there's no supply. Now, I assume something must have filled that void or taken the place of what's happening in that market. Isn't that an indication? What, uh, how are they dealing with it in Australia? Uh, yeah, it, it didn't disappear from the market. Um, and I think some insurers and reinsurers were hit harder than others. So it was a, a temporary exit. Um, I mean, through, through the product providers that were left, I mean, a lot, the product was revamped extensively. So it pretty much had got to a stage where it, it wasn't sustainable. And then, you know, like usual economics with the lack of supply, prices were driven up. They had more space to, to reinvent the product. Um, yeah, and as far as I know, it's mostly there at the moment. Um, the environment was a bit, a bit, a bit different. Um, I mean, I know in Australia they left... Um, the distance between the insurers and the claimants and the policyholders got quite far removed. So I know we sit as insurers, intermediaries, and our, our policyholders and claimants got a far more, a bit, a bit, a bit further removed, and it was also quite a litigious environment. Um, so you know the, the term ambulance chasers, where people would go and sit at hospitals and convince you to sue whoever for the accident that, that happened there. In Australia, there are adverts on television saying, do you belong to a disability income scheme? and do you feel a bit injured or sad, chances are you can submit a claim, call us. That's literally what happened. Um, and quite soon afterwards, the, the, the market bottomed out. So we don't have that problem yet, thank goodness. Um, but yeah, I think that it was a unique combination of factors there as well, which just things went uh, suddenly. It's a good idea for a slasher. <laughs> <laughs> we have one question in the front, if there's a mic. Here we go. Second one. Hi, Jason. Paul Trones here. Um, two, two questions I have. One is, um, the, uh, South Africa discovered that con uh, call centre workers are more uh, susceptible to disability and temporary illnesses? Have we discovered that? 
in, in Kenya, um, Safaricom, which has got an enormous call center, I mean, you know, they probably have, I don't know, uh, incredibly bad experience because it's a boring job and you just want to take Friday afternoon off and whatever. Uh, it's, it's, are we analyzing our incidents and recovery by not just by the industry they're working, by the particular occupations that people have? Yeah, I think, I think there's a lot done, there's not enough done on occupation. I think it's, it's, it's more granular than just, you know, um, what did you have up there, light, medium, heavy. So it does go further than that. I think more can be done on that to make it more granular. Um, I also think that when it comes to life, we have you know, low economic, socioeconomic is the worst risk and high is the best. I think it's not necessarily that way with disability experience or it's a lot closer. So the reason for a blue collar worker claiming might be literally because I can't lay bricks anymore. Or I can't go underground. Um, whereas for the white collar workers, it's very different, but there's very different types of claims, so a lot more stress, the backaches, the subjective claims. Um, and I also think just the, the financial and maybe medical education of that top band also enables them to claim easier. So some of the worst experience I have seen is for broker schemes, surprisingly. Legal schemes are difficult to manage. So if you speak to claims assessors about you know, what, what don't you want on the books, what is difficult to manage, it often is those types of schemes. And, and then my second question is, you know, this is annual renewable stuff. Yes. So uh, you know, if an employer is abusing the, 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 the scheme, um, you know, he's going to, uh, presumably it will come back and bite him next year when he tries to renew it and it will be a much higher. Have you, have you, has anybody tried a sort of a risk sharing arrangement with employers? There is profit sharing occasionally, but not loss sharing. <laughs> I knew that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I probably painted a simplistic picture with, you know, if you analyze it, you can see your experience has gone wrong, change it. Um, so it's not like companies didn't do that. I think, I think the conversations are just a bit harder um, and in going through an intermediary as well. So, you know, it's, are you justifying increasing experience on one year's bad experience? You know, it might just be a blip, you know, but I think as actors, we all could see it coming and then we had it. Um, and then we were probably a bit weak in enforcing that. So after two years, yes, then, then it was, you know, now something bad has happened. But now you've had two years of 5% increases and they're going to let you put through the five, maybe. So I think maybe the negotiations were quite tough. Um, yeah, and I think we probably could have been a lot stronger there. Third word on my left. Did you, sorry, I, did you yeah, have to Yeah, let me hang on the mic. There we go. Jason, it was Mental Health Day a couple of days back. And uh, obviously those claims are going to be the more difficult, more challenging, but equally I think slowly society is realizing that you know, mental health issues are real mm. and you know, cover needs to be provided. What are you seeing locally or internationally around developments there, if anything? Um, yeah, I mean, on the claim side, I mean, there is a lot happening, or well, a, lot, a lot has happened in terms of just training, um, so getting claims people up to speed, uh, skilled up in that area. Um, I also think just the data analytics there are important. So it's not, you know, as an industry, we're not trying to avoid these claims. They are just the ones that are more difficult to manage. Um, so it is anticipating them and, and knowing how to deal with them, with them properly um, and charging a rate that's appropriate for the risk, I think. Um, and knowing what we know, you know, I think who's going to be the first insurer to throw an economic cycle into their pricing? You know, so 
mortality can be quite flat and or we've got mortality improvements going or if you're in the lower income we're going to price upwards from the 80s because of HIV. Um, but yeah, we've got the cyclical thing and then, you know, in the short-term space and the banking space, they talk about, you know, through the cycle pricing. Um, you know, as I said, we don't do that yet. So you get forced down in the troughs and when you hit the top, you kind of top out there again. So again, it's, and if you've got profit sharing on that, you give away the profits you make every second year and when you make a loss, mm -hmm. you, you sit with it. Oh, David, just to chip in, um, on the, we're doing a lot of work as well on, on managing those claimants back to work. So, I mean, you're, once they start claiming, getting involved earlier, um, we're in partnerships with, with, with a few companies actually in terms of um, more digital, uh, sort of being in touch with them digitally and sort of managing them back to, I don't know, to not be as bad or, or maybe to go back to work. Um, it's quite an active claims management process, but there are ways of dealing with, with it. We also forward. found the, the attitude of the employer is a strong, strong factor there in, the, in how, that, how that works out. Thanks for everyone in the front. Everyone line. for Pervia, have you um, got examples of where machine learning is being used for actuarial functions at the moment? Well, um, as I said, the StatCore Consulting, uh, they have implemented algorithmic pricing. Um, in, from one of their major insurers, they just weren't allowed to say which client they were implementing it. So it is being done in the UK, um, and most of that work is being done by machine learning specialists, not necessarily people in the actual profession. And would you advocate that uh, actuaries become machine learning specialists, or is that uh, too much of a jump? Um, I would say rather implement it machine learning courses in the core technical exams or at least some form of programming because um, my experience so far has been that very little un undergraduate work implements programming and machine learning basically stems from programming. We have one over there. Siak Nimant from MMI. Um, so Pervia, if you were to apply machine learning to the PHI problem that Jason and them explained, and you back-tested <laughs> machine learning in that environment, what, what type of solutions would machine learning have come up with? And, and I, I sort of in the back of my mind referenced Dimitri's earlier comment about three important things to remember, and the second thing is that you can't do this theory-free. Um, so just thinking about that, I, th I thought it would be interesting. Maybe you guys uh, d actually did that. Let him answer, because um, it's actually quite, it's going to be interesting to see how he answers it. Um, there's no data on the group side in terms of to do that sort of analysis. We really struggle um, with getting the, the necessary data. So we, we've, we've tried to do as much as we could, um, but the data is really limited. You would think we would have a lot more in-depth data, but it's just not there. So I think once the industry can resolve that issue, then we can start giving it to the data scientists to, to get a solution. So go, over to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, as I said, they struggle with data, so you need to have to look, have a look at the data and whatever, whatever is available to you. As machine learning is just a tool, um, and a tool that can be implemented to solve many problems, and if it's not the, if it's not the right tool, you go another way. Um, so without actually knowing what's going on at the core there, it would be difficult to comment. And I don't want to comment on speculation. <laughs> Are there any more questions? 
Okay, I think we'll call it a wrap then. Once again, thank you very much to our speakers this afternoon um, for some fascinating insights, and we all need to go and learn some programming and machine learning in order to survive. Thank you, guys. <laughs>